When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to Let It Roll, the insanely ambitious musical history podcast hosted by Nate Wilcox. We've covered the early history of rock and roll, country music in the 20th century, the rise of hip-hop, disco, electronic dance music, and heavy metal. Stay tuned for our histories of Broadway, opera, punk rock, jazz, blues, ragtime, Latin music, and gospel. Follow the Let It Roll podcast on Twitter, at Let It Rollcast, and check out our website at LetItRollPodcast.com. Let It Roll is a Pantheon podcast, and you can listen to more great podcasts at www.PantheonPodcast.com. Today, Nate welcomes Kim Mack to discuss her 33 and a third book, Living Color, Time's Up. Email us at LetItRollPodcast at gmail.com. Pop in those earbuds and enjoy. It's time to let it roll. I'm your host, Nate Wilcox, and today I'm joined by Kimberly Mack, author of Living Color, Time's Up, from the 33 and one-third book series. Kimberly, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Cool. And so Living Color, this is a pretty personal one for me because this was right in my wheelhouse. I was 18, 19 in college, um, really excited about the music that was going on, especially the alt, the alt metal scene that Living Color kind of epitomized. So this one uh, is pretty personal. And, I, you know, I was way into Vivid and I bought Time's Up, but I didn't really zero in on the degree to which they faded at that point. And then, you know, their next album came out and then they broke up kind of in the immediate aftermath of Stain. So... What's your quick sort of summary of Living Color? And why is it that I remember their first album so much and then their second and third albums to a lesser extent? Yeah, no, that's a great question. Uh, so so I think, well, first I'll say I had a, I had a very different experience in that I, I remember Vivid, loved Vivid, um, but then I heard Time's Up and, and loved it more. Um, but yeah, I think... You know, I think Vivid was just a really great rock record. And to be more specific, I think a really great mainstream rock record. Um, I think its sound was legible to hard rock fans and also metal fans. Um, I think that, you know, kind of all of the things came together, you know, they're, they're, colossal talent, um, the great visibility that they got when they toured with the Stones and the Steel's Wheels Tour. Um, and, you know, I just think everything kind of worked. And then they had all of this success. It was a mainstream rock record and they had all this very commercial and critical success. And, um, 
I think that the next record was just different. Um, I think Time's Up was more complex. I think it was more a little more experimental. Um, there was a, a, a concept kind of tying everything together. Um, it had these sort of interstitial sort of musical vignettes in between. Um, if, you know, it had many different styles of music, sometimes in the same song. Uh, it had guest appearances who did not necessarily signify, some of them did, but not all of them signified kind of normative ideas of what rock is with Queen Latifah and Dougie Fresh and Nacio Parker. So I think that it was not what people were necessarily expecting. It wasn't Vivid 2. And um, it just didn't sell as well. It was, it was every bit as, in fact, it was more, I think, critically well-received than Vivid was. And, um, you know, it sold well at first and then, and then it kind of um, stalled. And I think that played a big role in people kind of losing track of them. Um, yeah, that's what I think. I think that sums it up pretty well. And, you know, one thing that the telescoping of time is always interesting. And looking back at Living Color and thinking about Living Color, especially we've been doing a kind of a series of, of history of heavy metal and talking about that big switch in the early 90s from kind of glam and thrash. And then there was, mm-hmm. you know, the official narrative is, and then one day grunge happened and all that stuff was in the past. But there was actually this big window Mm-hmm. of, I guess, what you would call funk metal, when bands like Jane's Addiction and Red Hot Chili Peppers and Fishbone and Living Color and Primus and, you know, on and on and on, Helmet and many others were pushing mm-hmm. hard rock in a new direction. We kind of don't see it as metal now. But it was sort of easy to glide over, like, how much resistance Living Color got. Like, going back and reading your book suddenly mm-hmm. brought me back to 88, 89. And when it was novel to have a black hard rock band. And I remember the excitement around that. And I remember a lot of me and my friends like wanting to like that, like, oh, cool. You know, we're open-minded. We're going to show we're open-minded and wow, this is actually a really good band. So that made it really easy. But there was a backlash both from white rock fans that didn't want anything to do with it, but especially from black critics and commentators. Talk about that a little bit, because that sort of caught in the whiplash effect was something I was kind of oblivious to. Yeah, I mean, you know, so for the record, for the book, I had the opportunity to interview everyone in the band, um, all the current members, including Doug Wimbish, and then also Mud Skillings, a former bass player, and um, it was really illuminating talking to Vernon Reed about a lot of these issues. Um, and yeah, I mean, there, it, was, it was not just white rock fans or um, the industry that, of course, was, was white run. Um, it wasn't just that resistance. It was also, you know, black people who didn't necessarily see rock as as black and didn't really understand what living color were doing in the beginning and um 
Yeah, and then there was, you know, that that kind of infamous review from Armin White where he accused uh, Living Color of of not just playing music that isn't normatively black, but just the way they were playing it. Um, his critique is that it was, um, you know, I'm paraphrasing the quote, but something like they were playing within this just whitest um, version of rock. Um, so they had a, they had a, an interesting cross section of criticism. You know, there was that sort of criticism. There was also the backlash about their, their commercial success. Um, you know, they were a band that was part of the black rock coalition. Of course, Vernon Reed was one of the co-founders of the black rock coalition with Conda Mason and Greg Tate. Um, and so there was some concern there that, um, you know, somehow their band was the band that became the mainstream band of the Black Rock Coalition. So there was some resentment there. And then, and then, and then, yes, there were some Black critics who um, thought that they were pandering in some ways, I guess, by playing rock music that sounded to them to be a particular white brand of rock music. And, and then there were just Black folks who didn't understand why they were doing this music in the first place. Cool. And let's go ahead and hear our first song. This was the, the first single off of Time's Up. This is Type by Living Color. Type by Living Color, the first single off their second album, uh, Time's Up. And it really struck me going back and listening and preparing for the show, how well I remember that song. I mean, that yeah. was pretty much, I, I mean, it wasn't as big as Cult of Personality, but it definitely got out there and, and was heard. And so, you know, it it's still, I'm still scratching my head at the dynamic of this album, you know, because the quick speed out the gate was a lot of sales first single does well and then just stalled out and yet it's such a strong album and um you know it's 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 just something to pull at but i want to get back into your personal experience because i was also struck and kind of pained i guess is the word you know for reading your story of being you know a young black female in new york in the 80s and loving rock music but not feeling welcome at all. Tell us about your experience, like seeing bands like Cheap Trick and Van Halen as a kid. Yeah, so, you know, I grew up with uh, a mom who who loved, you know, she was a baby boomer. She was born in 1946. She loved rock and roll when it came around um, and then stuck around when rock and roll became rock in the in the middle 60s late 60s um and that's that's a time when um kind of strangely oddly the music suddenly was um uh, marked as white um but she stuck around my my mom and um and continued to enjoy it so when i was growing up she was playing stuff in the 1970s um that had a great impact on me you know she was playing san lizzie and the sex pistols and 
uh, Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers and the Police and all these bands that I ended up really, really loving. And then when I was around nine years old or so, this would have been about 78, um, I started to just have my own favorites. And um, my earliest favorites were Blondie and then Cheap Trick. Um, and my first concert was seeing Cheap Trick at Radio City Music Hall in 1980. I remember UFO opening. Radio City Music Hall is a, is a, a small theater, so it's probably like 5,000 seats or something. And we had really great tickets. And I was just, you know, I was beyond thrilled to have the chance to see these, 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 these men who I admired so much uh, in person, live. And, um, and I just remember, even before I got there, to be really, really honest, I, I remember being a little bit concerned. You know, I just, I, I just had a sense of the music and um, I was also, my mom also had a lot of rock magazines around the house. Um, it's not a shock that one day I'd want to write about music myself. And so she'd have cream and Rolling Stone and trouser press and relics around the house. And, um, you know, but every, all the pictures I saw, all of the, all of the album covers, all of the posters, it was all very white. Um, and I just was concerned when I was going to the show that it was that, you know, I'm, I might be, I just might stand out. And, and then I got to the show and I had a great time, except I was really caught up in trying to see if I could see anyone who looked like my mom and, and me, and I didn't see anyone. <laughs> and, um, and yeah, I just spent a lot of time really trying to process that. And, you know, and then I, my second concert, which I talk about in the book was um, Van Halen in 1981. So a year later and I was 12 and, uh, and this was at Madison Square Garden and, you know, a much bigger show and again, had really, you know, decent tickets. And um, I think we were up in the balcony, but, you know, really nice view and, um, and, you know, the whole show was just mind blowing. I mean, it, it it was really the show that I think got me the most excited about the live concert experience. And, you know, Lee Roth was David Lee Roth and Eddie Van Halen. And it was just fantastic. But once again, I just felt, um, you know, just this, this sense of not belonging and looking around and the only black people I would see were folks who were working, who were at work, you know, at the concession stand or in the, in, you know, the ushers and such. And, um, and it just, it just reinforced what I thought at the time was that, you know, rock was white and, and I was welcome to buy a ticket or buy a record and, and all of that, but I wasn't really a part of it. And then you tell the story of the first time you saw Living Color uh, at the Academy in Manhattan. Tell us about that experience because once again, it's kind of a charged experience with a racial angle that I was that I didn't see coming. So tell us about the the show and the the black guy who <laughs> you into the pit. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah, yeah. So I, you know, I, I, you know, as I said, I I did grow up 
loving rock and 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 loving what would be seen as as hard rock i mean van halen i think fits in that category and um you know i did like thin lizzy and some other bands that were heavier uh, when i was growing up but i also liked a lot of rock bands that were not necessarily that heavy you know i really loved squeeze i really loved elvis costello et cetera, et cetera. and uh at that time and th- and i think living color um was a big part of this and and also um, the person who I was dating at the time, who I mentioned in the book, I think also was really actually had a great impact on a shift that I had in my own listening um, in terms of the rock genre. But but yeah, I had not been to a show. This was in 1990 at the Academy, uh, a club in New York City, and I had not been to um, <clears throat> a show that was like this before. I mean, it was, you know, just a... Oh, it was the beginning, you know, then in the nineties, I would go to many shows like this, but this is my first time going to a show where there was going to be a mosh pit and where, you know, like majority men would be, you know, crashing their bodies into each other. I just didn't know to expect this. My, my boyfriend on the other hand, at the time, Matt didn't know to expect this. And when we first got to the club and, and I didn't, talk about this in the book, but when we first got to the club, my friend and I, you know, my boy, my boyfriend at the time and his friend were there and they're like, okay, where do you want to stand? And my friend and I were like, well, at the front. And they just looked at each other like, really? And we were just like, yeah, at the front. So we went up to the front and um, yeah, we didn't know it was coming. And <laughs> they started the show and, and just immediately, you know, just the, 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 the floor parted and a mosh pit broke out and, and, uh, uh, this young black guy who I just remember him having these little tiny dreads and, and he just looked at me and he probably thought it was funny or he thought it was just, I don't know, maybe thought it was cool seeing me there. I don't know, but he, you know, took grabbed me by the shoulders and just, pushed me hard into the crowd, into the mosh pit. And next thing Gosh. you know, I'm, I'm in the mosh pit and I didn't last very long. Oh my yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I've been in that situation. Yeah. It was terrifying. I, I, I really, really, I was, I was, I was definitely scared. No doubt. No doubt. And, and Matt rescued you. Fortunately. Um, he did. You know. <laughs> he did rescue me. <laughs> so, but let's, let's, Shift gears a little bit. I want to talk about the background of Living Color. You mentioned the Black Rock. Oh, wait, Steph tells me it's time to cue. So I got to cue my next song. And uh, that's Time's Up, which is the first song. And the, the, the same song is the title of the album, Time's Up. So this is Living Color, Time's Up. Time's up the opening track from the album of the same name by Living Color. And um, I want to get into a little bit about the background of Living Color because they 
had an unusual resume for a band of this period. And I think their resumes kind of give us a window into what made them so unique because they're not, it's not just that they were racially betwixt in between. They were also musically betwixt in between to a certain degree because Vernon Reed um, had been in the jazz scene in New York. And he was uh, also a DJ and a commoner and a critic and, you know, co-founded the Black Rock Coalition with Greg Tate. And so it was kind of a man about town. And then, you know, Will Calhoun was a Berkeley School of Music graduate. Muzz Skilling's very much a technical musician. And Corey Glover was a trained basically an aspiring Broadway type. He, he was in the movie Platoon in a dramatic role, but he was um, not so much a dancer, but he was definitely a singer and an actor in that community. And so the thing with Living Color to me that was always made them a little different was that this combination of a band that does a song like Time's Up, which is obviously an homage to the Bad Brains. And mm-hmm. yet they come from this very much sort of I mean, Berkeley School of Music is about as far from the Bad Brains a, a, approach and aesthetic as you can get, but they're coming along at a time when people that went to the Berkeley School of Music are open to all this stuff. And you've got this whole new generation of bands that have got that kind of formal training and have, have you know, got the kind of Broadway chops like Corey Glover did, but also were open to radical music like the Bad Brains. And, and, you know, the Bad Brains kind of hang over this whole period of rock to me like a shadow because they're this immensely influential pioneering hardcore punk band who then goes on to kind of invent funk metal with their second, with their third or fourth album, Eye Against Eye, on SST in 86. But their singer, HR, and we did a whole episode on this, you know, had political reasons. He didn't want to be on a major label, and he also had personal reasons that made it very hard for him to do business. For whatever reason, the Bad Brains did not tour with U2. They did not sign with Island Records. They did not become the next big thing. But in retrospect, it does kind of look like they created the space for somebody like Living Color to be the next big thing. And so, you know, and I'm sorry we're talking so long. I'm just trying to get this story out so you can get to the meat of it. But Mick Jagger gives these guys their big break. Like, this is another thing that was totally, I remember when I read the book, I remembered reading that. Oh yeah. I remember hearing that Mick Jagger had some connection with them. And it was because Doug Wimbish, who goes on to be their second bass player was at that time, just a friend of Vernon White was working on Mick Jagger's second album with Jeff Beck and, and Jagger and Living Color was playing at CBGB's. They just come up in conversation. Doug Wimbish is like, oh, yeah, you, you should check him out. So Mick Jagger goes and checks him out, loves him, produces a demo with Ron St. Germain, who had produced the Bad Brains Eye Against Eye album. And that kind of opens their get, the gates. You know, they, they do this demo. They get signed to Epic and, and you know, they're off and running. Uh like you said, they opened for the the Stones on the Steel Wheels tour, which is really hard to comprehend how big that was. But the Stones had not toured for what seven years at that point. This was their first, the first of what we think of as the modern Stones. When they just come back, they've given up. They're not album artists. Mick's not going to go solo. They're just going to be the Stones, and tour stadiums and make money. And you know, so Living Colors in this spot, but. What kind of backlash did the Mick Jagger endorsement? I mean, because dude's kind of notorious for <laughs> appropriating. And and I mean, he's kind of yeah. been an ally sometimes, but he's still, mm-hmm. at the end of the day, mm-hmm. 
you know, is what he is. And, and that's kind of king of appropriation. What, how did Living Color walk that tightrope? Yeah, I mean, and that was one of the other things that, um, that made their ascent a little bit complex. Um, I think that there were folks, you know, black acts in the Black Rock Coalition who also sort of felt like Mick Jagger's involvement was a bit of a, a bit stinging, you know, it's like, okay, so um, Living Color becomes the, the, you know, the big band in the BRC, but also it, it's a, it's, it's the symbol, you know, Mick Jagger, as you said, of, of appropriation, um, who plays a role, um, you know, but he, he's not the only reason, obviously, and he, by the way, still had difficulty. Um, his, his endorsement did not open doors immediately because there was so much resistance to the idea of an all black rock band at that time that even Mick Jagger couldn't just snap his fingers and make it happen. So it's important to really, I think, note that as well. Um, but, but as you said, Mick Jagger also, um, to be fair, um, I think has done things and has tried as well to maybe, um, balance out (laughs) some of the, the ways in which he has benefited and the debt that he owes. I think he's tried to repay that in some ways with, you know, living color, but also with Prince. Um, I think that was another one where, you know, he, he um, tried to, and with his band um, to break a, a black rock artist. And I, I put Prince in the rock category as well. Um, so, but yes, uh, I think that he was definitely a symbol for that. And that, and that, further com- complicated their rise. Yeah, and it's interesting how much pushback they get because the other band that sort of um, shadows this book is Fishbone, who was kind of Living Colors' West Coast rival. They were on Columbia. They were coming out of the same club scene as the Red Hot Chili Peppers and Jane's Addiction and bands like The Nymphs mm-hmm. and Guns N' Roses and Junkyard, et cetera. And, you know, a lot of people thought that Fishbone was going to be the band to step up in the wake of the Bad Brains. And, and their Truth and Soul album came out around the same time as Vivid, if I recall correctly, and and had everything but that MTV hit. They were great live. I saw both Living Color and Fishbone live. Very hard, very hard to rate. Uh, you know, who, who was better? Um, Fishbone put on a, a hell of a show, but, you know, Living Color did get the breaks. They got the Stones tour. They got the MTV cult of personality and broke through. And and another thing that, that struck me reading this book, and it wasn't a surprise, but I hadn't really thought about it, but it was the emergence of the black middle class in this period, like the Cosby show generation of, of people mm-hmm. like living color, whose parents were professionals and mm-hmm. who, mm-hmm you know, did not grow up under, under economic duress. They had a lot of opportunities and a lot of training. Talk about that a little bit. Actually, Steph tells me it's time to take our sponsor break and then I'll turn it over to you to talk about that a little bit. So let's take hear from our sponsors and then we'll come back and talk about the black middle class and living color. 
Hello, Pantheon Podcast listeners. Christian Swain here to tell you more about my experience with Raycon earbuds. Our family now has three pairs of Raycon earbuds around the house. And my wife just grabbed a pair of the headphone pros to replace some headphones from a company that was double the price. And yes, she loves them. Now, if you haven't pulled the trigger on a pair of Raycons, or even if you have, but you're in the market for another pair because they're just that good, well, now is the time to check them out because they just launched their upgraded model of the best-selling everyday earbuds. With Raycon's upgraded everyday earbuds, now you also get active noise cancellation, ergonomic design, and multi-point connectivity that lets you pair with two devices at once, new quick charge function, three customizable sound styles plus awareness mode, available in a variety of vibrant new colors to complement any and all skin tones. I even have a pair of earbuds in a cool green color. I have tried just about every earbud known to humankind, and these Raycons are fantastic. Seriously, if you've been wanting to check out Raycons, there truly is no better time. You're going to ask yourself why you didn't check them out sooner, and Raycon offers a 30-day happiness guarantee. So, what are you waiting for? Go to buyraycon.com slash pantheon today to get 20% off your Raycon order, plus free shipping. That's right, you'll get 20% off and free shipping at buyraycon.com slash pantheon. Buyraycon.com slash pantheon. Hey folks, Stefan Shirazi and Renee Richardson here from the Metallica Report. And we are proud members of the Pantheon podcast family, where the best of music and podcasts unite. We've got something pretty cool for you. We're giving away an exclusive Metallica merch package worth over $250. That's a whole lot of scary guys, skulls, M72, and other sought-after Metallica swag. And we've made it easy for you to win. Follow and share the Metallica Report, and you're in the game. Go to pantheonpodcast.com slash Metallica, enter your email, and hit that button to be entered to win. And just like that, you're eligible for our monthly exclusive Metallica merch package. And guess what, rockers? You can enter every month. So just do it. And while we love our global brothers and sisters, the lawyers won't let us ship outside the U.S. And so, yeah, there was this quote in the book where Vernon Reed was talking about buppies. And I hadn't heard the word buppy in about 30 years. <laughs> What's a buppy? And and how did Living Color fit into that context of the expanding, you know, black middle class in a period when the bottom's falling out for the black underclass and the crack wars and, and everything mm-hmm. else? How did that mm-hmm. impact them and, and shape the way they came out of the gate? Yeah, so that quote was actually from um, Trey Ellis, who wrote this article called The New Black Aesthetic that came out in 1989. And, um, and Vernon Reed um, was actually quoted in that, in that article. But his, his, his article was all about this new sort of, um, it was really focused on artistic expression mostly, um, and all of the black artists and this and new approaches to black art. And he was making an argument about um, precisely this idea of, you know, the black, this black middle class, this new generation where there's more, there are more co- black college graduates than there had been ever before. Um, and how also uh, an intermingling, more of an intermingling um, between black and white and black and white people and then black and white artists 
um, you know, also had some impact on the black art, um, not a dilution, not any sense of um, the black art being compromised, but just a different approach and and coming from and you know and his ideas ended up morphing into this later idea that became post soul and a lot of people wrote about it and Greg you know Greg Tate wrote about it and Nelson George and a whole bunch of other people um, but it's just this idea of this whole generation this post civil rights generation so all of the people born to the parents who were marching um, and fighting for uh, equal rights and civil rights, the, their kids um, just having experiences and having opportunities that their parents fought, fought really hard for and the ways in which, you know, um, a, a, if not a complete erasure, but at least a um, slight um, easing of that strict color line, you know, what kind of impact did that end up having on this art? Um, and so Vernon was quoted in that and yeah, living color are certainly of that generation. Um, and they grew up definitely middle-class. Um, all of the members grew up middle-class, but, um, you know, I, I, I want to make a couple points here that I think are important. Uh, one <clears throat> As Corey mentioned himself, and I and I and I, it's in the book. You know, there's always an intersectional experience going on, and so when you're in the black middle class, they and I'll just I'll just let Corey speak for himself. But Corey specifically was saying that even though they were um, middle class and they were doing well at a certain point um, with Vivid they still felt a tremendous amount of, 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 of uh, inner pressure to continue working really hard and this sense that you can never let up and, you know, and doesn't matter what the class is, the race is always there. You know, Vernon's talked in interviews about, you know, not being able to get a cab at the height of their fame, you know? So I think it is important to, recognize that even though these four men were in, you know, kind of grew up in the middle class and then had some uh, early kind of uh, commercial success with their first record, they still were black and they still were dealing with um, a lot of the things that other black people were dealing with. And that doesn't go away. Um, I also just wanted to say that, you know, there's always been, a black middle class and, and to answer your question about what a buppy is, I mean, it's pretty much um, the same thing as a, as a yuppie, except it's with black folks. So it's black folks who were, you know, upwardly mobile in this time period, um, you know, college graduates and, asp and aspirants to greater wealth um, and affluence. And, you know, the difference between a buppy um, you know, who's somebody who most likely was not born to great wealth, um, but aspires to it. And somebody from the historic black middle class is that, you know, there's they, they're not coming out of, um, you know, they're not coming out of this, this, this foundation of wealth or, or um, ancestral wealth. Um, 
but I do think it's important to note that there was always a black middle class, um, you know, during times when some, <clears throat> when many black people were enslaved, there were free blacks and, you know, and in bef- before um, the 1960s, there was a black middle class and, um, and certainly before um, the eighties, there was a black middle class. So, but I think, yeah, living color emerged at a time when, there's just more of a critical mass of college educated black, young black people um, concentrated, particularly the person who wrote the piece was really focused on New York city. They were in New York city. Um, And I think it did, it was a movement. It was, it was certainly a scene um, that was very vibrant and, um, and that article captured it well. Definitely. And let's go ahead and hear our third song. And this is Pride off the Time's Up album. And this is Live at the Apollo in 1990, Living Color. That was Pride, uh, performed live at the Apollo in 1990 off the second uh, Living Color album, Time's Up. And this is an al- This is a song. Uh, I was surprised that this was written by the drummer because I thought this was mm-hmm. kind of the statement mm-hmm. off the album. And and so it's always kind of a, not to go with the corny drummer jokes, but it's always a surprise when the drummer writes the the big philosophical piece. But but you said well, that this- well, not when it's not when it's Will Calhoun though. Well, fair <laughs> like, enough. Fair well, enough. <laughs> yeah and and uh and definitely he's the berkeley college of music alumni who had played with jaco pistorius and you know i mean and and again with the resume like mick jagger is, is in their circle of connection but also jaco pistorius and so these guys are hooked mm-hmm. up and 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 um but you said that this song pride kind of gave rock back to you as a black person can you talk about that and also about how Living Color's approach to their lyrics added to their impact so much. Oh, yeah. I mean, yeah, uh, I I remember it really, really well. Um, I remember watching that Apollo appearance with my mom. And, um, you know, that was their second time playing at the Apollo. I remember the first time they played at the Apollo, I was hoping that they were going to play Cult of Personality. I really wanted to see that. And and also, I have to say, you know, again, quite honestly, I wasn't sure how the Apollo crowd was going to greet them. Um, the Apollo crowd, you know, is just uh, famous for not holding back and being really clear with whether they think, you know, whoever's up there deserves to be up there or not. And, um, you know, I just wasn't sure how they were going to receive them when I first saw them for vivid and, um, but I was disappointed because I didn't play cult of personality. And uh, I remember at the time thinking, Oh, okay. So maybe they're nervous about playing that or, you know, why are they playing? You know, they played broken hearts and they played uh, a open letter to a landlord. And, um, 
and from my perspective at that time, I felt like those songs weren't as hard. I was all about the hard rock at that point and wasn't as hard as Cult of Personality. But when they played Pride, when they came back later and played Pride in 1990, I, first of all, that song obviously rocks, but also just the lyrics, you know, don't ask me why I play this music because it's my culture. So naturally I use it. I mean, that's all I needed to hear. And, and I'd been just looking for that and hoping for that to come from somewhere. Um, you know, and so that lyric really opened up a new world to me and it made me of course feel proud. Um, but it also encouraged me and prompted me to finally, you know, kind of do the work and, and learn more about the history of this music and really, you know, live in color and, you know, Greg Tate too, which perhaps, <clears throat> excuse me, perhaps we'll talk about more another, you know, later, but they, they both had a really strong impact on just the whole direction. I think my, um, life and career has taken in terms of writing about music yeah that's the um great gift that a musical artist can give you is is to put some idea in your head put it to music and and let you take that out into the world and uh transform but let's talk about the making of the album a little bit they worked with ed stasium who had worked on their first album and you know he's uh, associated with ramones and motorhead uh Tons of bands, great rock and roll resume, but it seems like Ed Stasium views Living Color as one of the most important artists he worked with, and Time's Up as, he calls it, the Black Sergeant Peppers. And I'm, I'm assuming that's because of the sort of collage pieces that that link mm -hmm. the longer songs. Um, but I thought that was a really interesting comparison. And, and the bit about how they and you mentioned this, how they felt like they had to keep working hard and that they couldn't take it for granted. They couldn't just do vivid, you know, mock two and, and mm -hmm. do the cash in that they felt that they had to grow and expand on what they were doing. And, you know, maybe that's what hurt the album uh, in the long term, but it also is what gives us this album, which like you said, is one, I think there's a reason this is the one with the book about it and not vivid that there's, there's a certain gravitas to this and going back and listening to it, you know, and it had been so long since I listened to it as an album. I've, I'd had tons of these songs in my playlist from this period, but I hadn't really been listening as an album. So it's interesting to me and Prince is one you don't bring up, but it really almost feels like they were going for, it reminds me of like late period Beck when he starts really doing his Prince imitation and that they're <laughs> stretching their boundaries and that Prince is their role model here, that, that giving them permission to do all kinds of stuff. I mean, there's tunes with South African influence. There's tunes with, mm -hmm. with house and garage influences. There's even a, a house a song where, you know, Corey Glover talks about singing like Sylvester, the great high energy mm -hmm. singer. And so, Mm -hmm. it, it's very different than sort of what you might expect for, you know, like the funk metal opus or whatever. This is, this is much more broad ranging. And, and mm -hmm. I mean, mm -hmm. what's your impression of it? Like, cause they did this under pressure uh, right off the road, bam, into the studio, you know, wrote some of the songs up front, but wrote some of the songs in the studio. How do you view the, the creation of this? Is this, 
like everything came together perfectly or there was this window of opportunity and they seized it or just what's your take on the creation of Time's Up and, and their, the statement that they made with their opportunity? Yeah, so I mean, it, from what they expressed to me and my sense um, in, in, in kind of thinking through their thoughts, I, you know, I think that they felt, you know, yeah, a sense that they just could not half step, you know, that, 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 that success that they had was not guaranteed to continue. Um, that, you know, and you mentioned Fishbone earlier, I mean, Living Color cracked, you know, the top 40, cracked the top 10 in some, in some, in some, uh, in some uh, pieces with their work, um, made it onto MTV in the heavy rotation, you know, made, you know, won Grammys, did all the things. And, um, and that's the thing that really, really set them apart from all of the other black rock groups that were um, either influences for them or contemporaries or peers. And all of that happened, but I think they still, did not take any of it for granted, did not uh, think that they didn't have to roll up their sleeves and get right back in the studio and, and, and kick ass. And, um, and they were just really focused. They also, you know, had spent a lot of time on the road and that made them, you know, tight as a unit. And they wrote some of those songs, as you said, on the road, uh, but they also didn't write all of them on the road, but they came back really able to um, perform well together as a unit and very inspired, I think, by all that had happened. And again, feeling this sense of urgency to not rest on their laurels um, and, to, and, to, and to top themselves. And, you know, and as they all told me, they wanted to do something different. They were not interested in doing, you know, a redux of, of, of Vivid. And, um, and, you know, they were just really motivated to to be experimental, to try different things, um, to make use of the new resources that they had. Cause they had more resources than they had the first time around. You know, they had better gear and 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 um, more uh, uh, you know, kind of like uh, that room at A and M Studios. That's great sound. So yeah, they just wanted to take advantage of all of that. Let's go ahead and hear our fourth song. This is the New Jack theme from live from the 1990 Grammy Awards. Living Color Live in 1990 Grammy Awards doing the New Jack theme, a song that they played in front of Mayor David Dinkins and pissed him off because uh, it's, you know, about the New Jack uh, gangsters. Um, and uh, but the the thing with 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 
the the 33 and a third series that always kind of frustrates me is is that you almost always tell the story you tell what happened before then but when it comes to telling what happened to the band after the album sometimes it kind of trails off tell us about what happened to living color after the the times up release like what happened with mud skillings and and the final album the breakup the reunion etc <laughs> yeah so you know to to be really honest once again um i did not focus on the breakup um i focused on the you know the making of the record and the aftermath of the record itself so in the book i, I certainly talk about what touring was like after and um you know they went from playing stadiums with the Rolling Stones. And then when they did their own tour with Time's Up, they were playing clubs and um, some theaters and, um, you know, and headlining these, these places. And so I talked about the reception of um, that um, and that tour. And, um, and then I, you and, know, and then I also talked. I'm sorry to jump yeah. in, but there was, there was something you said about the crowd and the way the crowd had changed that I thought was really yeah. interesting because, you know, they had just, they had toured with the Rolling Stones, but they had also toured Europe with Anthrax and that you saw an early gig uh, for this album and that the crowd had kind of been boiled down. It said that you say that headbangers and metal youth stayed away as did the masses of black Bohemians. Instead, the hall filled up with the collegiate alternative music audiences that first supported the band. So for a brief minute, they had, the headbangers and then did and I, I wasn't clear if you meant that they did briefly have the masses of black bohemians or not um but by this point either way their their audience has kind of been boiled back down to the collegiate alternative music nerds that and nerds is my own uh threw that in there myself um <laughs> But it's, you know, boiled back down to to what we used to call at the time, oh, it's just, you know, the college rock crowd, which I was stuck in the college rock crowd and always trying to break out. Or this band I love, you know, uh, is bigger than the college rock crowd. But talk about that, like that boiling down of their audience and why you think they lost some of those segments. Well, um, so uh, I didn't, I didn't, that wasn't actually my quote. That was... Um, a quote from one of the reviews uh, of the show, but I do think that, yeah, what ended up happening, and I and I alluded to it earlier in our talk, is I think that that first record, because it was, I think, a very straight-ahead rock record with kind of legible big riffs, you know, um, pretty much throughout. Um, and songs that I think, and again, I, I love, I love Vivid. I think it's a great record, but I think it's a, um, a pretty mainstream rock record. <laughs> I don't know how else to put it. I think it's a pretty comparatively safe record if we're comparing it to Time's Up. Um, and I think it was able to pull in people who like metal, people who like hard rock, people who you know, it had some songs in there because of the lyrics and, you know, they're always, um, um, you know, saying something beyond um, what's the norm for, for a lot of like rock lyrics. Um, 
you know, it also pull in the college crowd. But I think, yeah, I think that first record was able to bring in just a wider range of ranges of listeners because of its more mainstream appeal. Um, I think Time's Up, again, was a different record and it was going to bring in the people who were interested in um, more um, complicated ideas, both musically and even lyrically, because they, they went beyond just kind of talking about um, uh, social justice issues, which they certainly do on Time's Up, but they also talked about love and they talked about the environment and they talked about all kinds of things that they talked about um, quite presciently, uh, you know, the computer age and predicted the chaos of the internet, <laughs> you know, all yeah. kinds of things were on this record that I just don't think we're going to be as easily digestible for a large, 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 varied group of people. I just think this was a, a, a different kind of a record. Yeah, no doubt. And we talked about Greg Tate a little bit, but he, you have some more quotes from Greg Tate, uh, the late, great Greg Tate. Um, mm. I want to acknowledge his passing, but Greg Tate talked about the Highlander problem. And that's the mm -hmm. 80s movie with Sean Connery where, uh, there could be only one. There's only one Highlander at any given time throughout the cosmos mm -hmm. and space and time. And and he says, you know, Living Color was it for a minute. But then after Living Color, it was Rage Against the Machine mm -hmm. and then TV on the radio and then nothing is the way he put mm -hmm. it. Talk about that transition a little bit, because to me, it's like Living Color's first two albums were pre-Nirvana, pre-Rage Against the Machine. And there's this switch that happens after Nirvana that um, kind of changed the game. And I feel like Living Color kind of got left behind in that pre-Nirvana, which so many bands did. Um, it's no knock on Living Color. It was just this brief window. But, you know, Jane's Addiction broke up and, and you know, so many of these bands, even the Chili Peppers briefly broke up and, and kind of reformed later in the 90s. But so this funk metal scene kind of got I don't want to say shot torpedoed under the, the waterline, but, you know, it's definitely a different world very quickly after they come up. How do you view like that, that next generation of, 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 you know, black members and, and funk influenced uh, bands and the whole new metal scene, I think you could say comes directly out of living color and fishbone and, and mm -hmm. bad brains and that influence. How do you, do you view it as just a sea change that living color was caught in or, could they have played the game a little differently and maybe stayed on top longer? Yeah. I mean, and that's one of the things that does come up in the final chapter, which I thought was um, really um, it, it, an interesting moment um, when I was talking to Corey Glover about this and he was very candid in suggesting that, Time's Up wasn't, from his perspective, a second record. Time's Up was more like a third or fourth record. Um, and um, and had the band perhaps done uh, just another version of Vivid and, you know, and tried to stick to uh, a formula that clearly worked the first time that maybe they would have um, had 
more lasting commercial success. One of the things I talk about is, you know, I think when people talk about living color, they're, they're frequently talking about them as underrated. And I, I actually don't see them. I mean, I think I always thought that way myself, but I, I you know, in, in kind of going back and doing the research and reading the reviews and figuring out, you know, their, their commercial success and the trajectory of that, um, you know, I don't, I actually revise that opinion. I don't think they were ever underrated. I think they, everybody recognized um, really what they were from the beginning. Um, Some of that got clouded a bit by all the conversation around their race, which was endless in the press, but, you know, no one could deny uh, just their sheer um, talent. And this is to every single, every single person in the band having really exceptional um, technical skills as musicians and singer. Um, And, you know, but they, um, but they uh, were just a band that, you know, took their second record seriously, wanted to do something different and then veered off. There are also, you know, critics who talked about this Highlander thing and, you know, this idea of, I think a lot of people thought that the floodgates were going to open after Living Color. Obviously, they showed that there was a market for a great, uh, you know, great rock band, um, even a great black rock band. Um, but that didn't happen. And I think that nonetheless, as you say, I do think that they, um, did open the door. Um, they did open the door crack. It wasn't the floodgates, but there was a crack that did make room for a rage against the machine. Um, that did make room for a TV on the radio, but even still, I think it is important to note that those are not all black rock bands. Um, and I think that there was hope (laughs) that, um, their success was going to pave the way for more bands that, that, that looked like them. Yeah. And we, we ended up getting more of kind of blended bands. I think Tom Morello, you have a quote from Tom Morello at the end of the book talking about that, 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 you know, living color changed the face of rock and roll until then there was real segregation on the radio. They paved the way for Rage Against the Machine or Soundgarden bands that had POC in their midst. But like you say, we're not, all black and so yeah that that was a big distinction you see that with the new metal bands that there there's lots of groups mm-hmm. with right. uh, you know one or two black members but there's very right. few um following you know the bad brains or or isley brothers or living color path of going with what's an all black lineup so yeah i mean it's 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 interesting i do want to throw out the the, the story that i came across doing the research that you didn't mention in the book was you know, their, their final album comes out staying on Epic in mm-hmm. 93. Mm-hmm. And then mm-hmm. they get hit with this lawsuit by this guy who calls himself the stain who hadn't even yeah. con- tried trademark the name when the album title comes out. And I've never heard anybody getting sued over an album title before. I mean, it's like mm-hmm. a pretty generic word. You should, should, you know, and, and then Sony ends up pulling the record out of print for years. And and yeah. uh, 
you know, just like I assume because the band had broken up and they were just they don't want to throw good money after bad uh, defending a lawsuit. But still, it's just so maddening and such a contempt uh, mm-hmm. for the artists and the fans and, and the artwork, uh, you know, just to drop it like that. Do you have any comment on the, the whole Stain album or the, the end yeah. of the band's 90s run? Yeah, I mean, I mean, another great record, by <laughs> the way. I mean, and, and this is something I also talk about in the book. I mean, you know, Living Color fulfilled its promise, you know. I mean, you know, Shade is a wonderful record, you know. Like, it, it, they, they continue to be a fantastic band, and um, the the quality of their music has not fallen off. But, yeah, Stain was another great record, um, a hard record, really hard. Um, and... Um, a little more metallic, um, kind of through and through. I mean, they always had some of those elements in the first couple records, but, but, um, but yes, that I do think there are a lot of things that, 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 that created this, again, this, this sense that folks have of their being underrated is just, I think, again, it's not about critical acclaim. It's not about accolades. It's not about, um, how they were received in the beginning it's 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 i think from my perspective it's about commercial success and um and i think having that lawsuit obviously did not help taking a whole record out of circulation does not help um the breakup the timing of the breakup did not help um but i think everything kind of really um started that shift i think with you know again i think it was the the from my perspective as somebody who loves the band and really thinks that time's up is 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 a great record i'm really happy they made that record but yeah if we're thinking about all the little things that added up to the big thing where um you know they kind of moved away from that commercial success that they'd had um that decision to to kind of do times up as the second record probably did play some role as well and uh my guest has been kimberly mack the book is living colors times up 33 and a third series so kimberly thanks so much for coming on the show and and spreading the word about living color yeah. band i think that uh I think a band that made a difference and the fact that we're not having these endless conversations about black rock bands anymore is because of them. Like they, I think didn't succeed in everything they set out to do, but they did make it okay to be a black rock band. I think we can say so. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, There's no question. And I think you can hear their, as you said earlier, you can hear their influence and, um, you know, in, in, in many bands that have followed. Um, and, uh, I think that we might take it for granted now, but they, they just made a big difference in, in, in what we think about and what we think a black rock band or what we think a rock band looks like. Absolutely. So thanks so much, Kim. Thank you. Follow the Let It Roll podcast on Twitter at Let It Rollcast and check out our website at LetItRollPodcast.com. Monday, Nate and Ed Legg will be back with more discussion of Michelangelo Matos's book, Can't Slow Down, How 1984 Became Pop's Blockbuster Year. 
Let It Roll is a Pantheon podcast, and you can listen to more great podcasts at www.pantheonpodcast.com. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more fantasy points.